This is what's called a step wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the show. Ellen Levita with you. This week is Women's Health Week and we're joined in the studio by three female academics to discuss the complexities of female healthcare. Hi, I'm Melissa Kang. I'm an Associate Professor in the Discipline of Public Health in the Faculty of Health at UTS. Hi, my name's Rachel Crawford. I'm a Physiotherapy Lecturer with the Graduate School of Health at UTS. Hi, I'm Michelle DiGiacomo. I'm a Senior Research Fellow in the Centre for Cardiovascular and Chronic Care at UTS in the Faculty of Health. Melissa, I might actually start with you because your research skews to the younger end of the spectrum. Yes. You used to work for Dolly Magazine and you've been working there for 20 years now. Have the health issues that young women face changed in that time? I don't really think so. The concerns that they write to Dolly about tend to come from younger adolescents. So we're talking 11 to 15, 14, 15 years. And I've watched those concerns over yeah, about 23 years now. And they tend to be centred around puberty and what's happening to their bodies. So lots of questions about periods and tampons and breasts and also about relationships and early kind of sexual experiences or, I guess, um, feelings what I think has changed is the specific questions are within those categories. So when we talk about puberty and changing bodies, there's been a huge shift over that time to questions around pubic hair and genitals. And is that I, coming from porn? That see, I would I would certainly think that's coming from the availability of internet porn and the fact that female porn stars don't have any pubic hair and so their labia are much more prominent. So girls who are going through puberty are asking about whether they should be removing their pubic hair and if they do, why their labia might look odd to them or asymmetrical and all the things we know are completely normal. How does that impact on young women's mental health, having those the pressure that comes with porn? There's a lot of interesting research that's going on about that and... I think there's, you know, different ways of understanding that. So young women do have lots of body image concerns, but so do young men increasingly, actually. And that could also be coming from porn. So I think it affects both men and women. Whether it's leading to anxiety in relationships, I think that's probably too, it's too complex to put it all down to porn. I think that porn is affecting the way young couples, heterosexual couples are interacting with each other. But that's probably slightly older women than the, the Dolly readers. Mental health concerns are the most the most common concern in young women, so anxiety particularly, but also depression and sometimes more complex mental health um, issues, so self-harm and suicide, for example, are concerns for young women. I don't think that's necessarily coming from porn. I think it's a lot of other factors, uh, expectations, um, family issues, school pressures, and, and relationships with peers. So I think it's much, much wider than sort of an intimate romantic or sexual relationship. And are women seeking out help from health professionals for physical and mental concerns? We know from the research that's done across Australia, uh, encounters in general practice, that 
uh, once a girl reaches the age of about 14, 15, young women seek help much more than young men. So they are going to their GP. And once they reach about 16, they are seeing their GP for more what we call family planning concerns. So we assume that that's around perhaps periods and contraception. But it's still um, the number one concerns that they present to GPs for are still your flus and your coughs and your colds and kind of physical sprains and those kinds of things. But yes, up in the top 10, you are starting to see family planning encounters, mental health encounters, so depression and anxiety. I'm going to throw this out to the whole panel. How important is it for females to have a trusted GP? Yeah, I would I would say definitely from my own experience, I think you, you need to trust your GP and be able to sort of enter into that relationship knowing that everything you say is going to be confidential and that you've got someone who has empathy or certainly can understand what you're going through and, and can point you in the right direction if, if you need ongoing referral. Yeah. And what happens if women don't trust their GP? I suppose um, that can get very dangerous if women won't offer information about what's happening with them health-wise or socially and that just means that some of their health concerns may go neglected or unaddressed for quite a while when things can get out of hand. So it is really important that people feel comfortable raising different issues, even things that could be potentially, you know, embarrassing or private with a general practitioner or, you know, nurse as well. Melissa, you said that it's in, some people don't, some women don't realise that they can shop around for a GP. Yes, if we look in big cities like Sydney and if we look across the state of New South Wales, especially that for young women, there are a lot of different kinds of services that are available. So there's general practice, which is still the most likely to be used by the majority of the population, whatever the age is. But in uh, Sydney and New South Wales, we have youth health services. They tend to target the more marginalised young people. There are family planning clinics, there are sexual health services, there are women's health clinics... There are uh, refugee health clinics, for example. So there are a range of services that might be particularly um, tailored to a, a young woman. But what can sort of fall apart there, or people can fall through the cracks because they don't know about all these different services, or they may go to different services and those services don't talk to each other. They don't. So you might get duplication of services or kind of one service might assume that another service has done particular things that they really haven't. So coordination integration can be problematic in my experience with mm. working with young people, particularly those who are marginalised. So they, they do go from a, one GP to the next and different things get done and they're not quite sure what really should be going on. That's right across the age spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Something I was also surprised to hear is that young women are smoking quite a bit. Well, the rates in Australia have actually gone down. So that's, I mean, that's good news. But is that overall? Yes, overall. And they've gone down in young people as well. But what we do know is that young women, teenage girls, are more likely to smoke than teenage boys. So there's been this disparity for quite a while now, and that seems to be continuing. Some of the reasons for that could be to do with trying to uh, keep thin, because smoking can suppress your appetite. We think that's probably one of the the big reasons. Does that continue into adulthood if they start early? Yes, if you start, well, smoking, if, if you can prevent a young person from taking up smoking, they're much less likely to smoke into adulthood. Yeah. Michelle, when we're looking at young females, how important is it that they set up those good habits early on in life? 
It's tremendously important, um, especially quitting smoking. Um, that is the number one um, risk factor or, you know, modifiable risk factor for, you know, developing cardiovascular disease later in life. And just, you know, getting into those healthier habits or getting enough exercise, um, just not be being seated all day long, um, eating well. And these are really important to start younger. Moving from young women into sort of middle age, women become caregivers in, in that phase of life. How important then is it that women maintain all those healthy behaviours? Well, certainly the roles of women, when they become caregivers, they sometimes put their own health needs to the side, uh, kind of on the back burner, so that they're focusing more on other people. So younger people, so if they have children, but also if they're caring for people, spouses or older people, and this continues into older age. So it becomes a time in life when some of their own health issues might go ignored for a while because they're prioritizing other people's. And I think especially middle-aged, now that we're living longer and longer, mm. middle-aged women kind of get sandwiched between looking after kids and looking after their own parents. What do women need to do to make sure that they prioritize themselves? I think it's probably being a little bit more selfish and thinking about putting time into their day when they can look after themselves physically and mentally and just have, a, I suppose, an increasing self-awareness of the benefits of maintaining health and wellness for themselves. And I think that then has an impact on those around them as well. So we know that, you know, health is contagious in the sense that, you know, if someone looks healthy and feels healthy, then they'll, that will manifest really strongly and is, is a positive influence on those people around them as well. Thinking about pregnancy, that kind of has long-term health in impacts long, long after you've pushed that baby out. Rachel, what do women need to do to make sure that they can stay healthy? In the, I think in physiotherapy in particular, the pelvic floor is of importance. So physiotherapy for women is very broad and there's, there's lots of things that, that we can help women with. And certainly the pregnant woman, obviously, because of pregnancy, there's hormonal changes, so um, ligaments soften, and that means that joints potentially can become more painful, so pregnant women can have back pain for quite a long period of their pregnancy. And one would assume that might then disappear once the baby's been born, but that's not necessarily the case. Also, just the, the pelvis being put under such pressure with having that baby inside it can also be strained during the pregnancy and during, during birth as well. So physiotherapy is, I think generally we're, we're aiming to improve quality of life in people, which is decreased pain, increased muscle function, increased joint stability, maintain function and, and participation in, in life generally. So for a, we wouldn't want to see um, any woman who's just had a baby have any prolonged pain unnecessarily so a physio would try to limit pelvic girdle pain post post delivery of the baby as well in preparation for this interview i was asking a few women at the station what they think the big women's health issues are and pelvic floor obviously came up and one of my colleagues said that her mum always told her when you stop at a red light do your pelvic floor mm. exercises that's right and i think physios are very good at trying to tap into a person's day-to-day -day life you know so we've got to try to make whatever we ask them to do or or suggest that they do to improve their their function and their quality of life we would want to make sure that fits in with their daily program as best we can without 
saying you need to go into a different room and do 10 of those exercises and then come out again. It's changing, you know, we're trying to sort of tap into a person's um, motivations, when and where they can do exercises that suit them and that will will bring benefits. So certainly anything that prompts pelvic floor exercise is good. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. Today I'm joined by Michelle Giacomo, Melissa Kang and Rachel Crawford. We've just been chatting about the importance of pelvic floor. Rachel, what happens if women don't do those pelvic floor exercises? I think there's probably a spectrum across which it becomes more problematic and I think it depends on the activity of the person. Um, The worst case scenario of insufficient pelvic floor is is the prolapse which is um, a a dropping down of the bladder and the uterus into into the pelvic floor and that obviously is is dangerous and can have lasting effects and may need surgical repair. So to maintain the tone of the pelvic floor is the main aim in order that that prolapse doesn't happen. So what happens when when prolapse happens? Well a woman would perhaps start to be able to feel Um, a protrusion in her vagina usually which could be the bladder or the uterus dropping down um, just because of that lack of tone of the pelvic floor but the pelvic floor also you know as we pull that up that gives that lower abdomen some support so if that support isn't there then things move and drop and um and is that what where incontinence comes from or is incontinence a separate issue altogether they're they're not mutually exclusive but you know there would be some link with incontinence and prolapse but women and men can have incontinence without other things going on so if we talk about a different client group say your elite sports sports person who could be male or female they could be engaging in prolonged continuous high level impact activity such as let's take trampolining for example if you think of that as a high level sport that constant bouncing on the trampoline increases the pressure on the pelvic floor Um, and so the pelvic floor could essentially be for want of a better word healthy or intact but it can still the tone of it can still be improved and what that person might um, notices that they start to leak urine when they bounce on the trampoline. But even at a lower level, you know, anybody who has urinary incontinence, a sign and symptom of that is that maybe they feel leakage when they cough or sneeze or run for the bus or they don't quite get to the toilet in time because, you know, they can't hold their bladder. So I think the message is there's lots of different levels of, of, of what's going wrong, and I wouldn't want to frighten people, but certainly a symptom, an early symptom of pelvic floor insufficiency will be urinary incontinence. Michelle, incontinence causes a lot of women to end up in aged care. Well, yes, it's one of the number one reasons for people to be admitted into aged care facilities is this incontinence so it's great motivation for people to really build up those muscles when they're younger and and into older age because that's not something anyone really wants to do. And why do you need to be in aged care? Why can't incontinence be dealt with at home? That would be perhaps to do with just personal hygiene perhaps becoming more of an issue for a carer. I suspect it, it probably is a co- a, a coexisting condition perhaps with mm. things like maybe an increased falls risk but certainly it would be a common presentation in someone who's requiring ed- aged care if they've become more dependent on someone else to to support them cardiovascular disease that's one of the biggest reasons why women die 
What is cardiovascular disease? Well, it's the number one killer of women. Women are more likely to die from cardiovascular disease than breast cancer. And so that's something we're always trying to increase awareness of because lots of women don't realize that. It can take many different forms. So is cardiovascular disease the same as heart disease? And is it what causes heart attacks? Yes. It would also include stroke as well. So a stroke is, you know, a manifestation of an insufficient blood vessel, either a bleed or a clot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it could be a stroke as well. And for some, for women, they often have different signs and symptoms um, as opposed to what they might perceive as the traditional kind of Hollywood or male heart attack with the clutching of the chest, the pain. Um, women might experience different types of symptoms like nausea or middle back pain. Um, they probably know about the jaw pain sometimes or down the left arm, also chest pain, but um, it's just really important to raise awareness of these kind of different symptoms and different physiology associated with it. Why, why does cardiovascular disease affect women so much? I think in, in affluent countries and, and middle-income countries, it's to do with what we call lifestyle generally, so diet, exercise. Obviously, there's a genetic component and some women are at higher risk regardless of those other lifestyle factors. Smoking's a huge risk factor. Mm. Um, alcohol, sedentary lifestyle, mm. sitting all day, that's sort of deemed to be the new smoking yep. in the sense of... So, sitting <laughs> is the new smoking. Yeah, so and it I has the same effect. Also same the way. perception that it mostly affects men and it only really is a man's disease is a big mm. problem um, and it's why many women are, you know, the we're hearing more about women in cardiovascular disease because mm. for so long it was perceived as not their issue. That's right. Even when I was training, it was always... Typically, your your typical cardiovascular patient was your male, who was sedentary and maybe diabetic and a smoker right. and you know overweight. Um, so I think it's just been how we you know how we've been influenced by information and that's not and changing. For a long time, the research yes. was really only conducted on men. So we're seeing you know kind of an increase in prioritizing of women because they have some you know microvascular issues going on that men have a different kind of manifestation of cardiovascular mm. disease. But, you know, there was that inequity in the research and the randomized control trials that were being conducted it was prioritizing men. Women, we live longer. Yay us. <laughs> Looking forward into, you know, we'll have, being here 80, 90, 100 years, what, what issues do women need to think about long, for long-term health? One thing that's not usually discussed in conjunction with health very much is economic security and financial literacy. And that's something that still needs to be addressed as women age, um, particularly if they're from a background or have been socialized, to not be the manager of the household finances. And yes, they're living longer, and unfortunately, sometimes living longer with more disability, sometimes on their own. So their partner passes away and they're still around for another 10 years, right. say. or more, really. And um, so, you know, continuing to support and develop uh, women's levels of understanding of making informed judgments and decisions about how to use and manage money, that's one of the important things. And a lot of women get quite worried and upset about when thinking about their economic situations and going on into the future, particularly if they're caregivers who have another priority. So it's something that does actually link quite a bit to their health and well-being. I think if we if we define health as as well as in terms of well-being as well, my 
concern for young women is that we still live in a world that's got a lot of double standards. So because particularly the girls who write into Dolly, but also the young women I see as a clinician and my er- one of my areas of interest is in sexuality and sexual health. I think there's a lot of still gender imbalance and discrimination against young women. So we see sexual violence. We see young women as victims of things like what goes on social media, exploitation of intimate relationships that have gone sour. So things like sharing of sexted messages, sharing on social media. So I think we see a lot of that. So I I guess I think that if we can look at well-being into the future, that we need to do something about uh, those, those double standards and those gender differences. To wrap up today... As females, what is something that you wish, you know, your mum or your grandmother said to you to promote your health and well-being? It's very clear in my mind for me. I think thinking back to that tender age in early adolescence Mm. when it's just all so awkward (laughs) and people say, would you ever want to be an adolescent again? No, not at all. (laughs) I think it is about feeling... um, empowered as a young woman in all aspects of mm. life. So I, for mm. example, I have you know, had wonderful parents and a very privileged upbringing and I had lots of educational opportunities. However, sexuality was completely mm. a black hole in my growing up and it was not okay to talk about it and it was not okay to have any, you know, understanding of my own sexuality. And, and I, would, I would have liked that from a female role model, mother, grandmother either actually, um, mm. yeah. I think I'd, I would definitely agree there with Melissa that that's that's something that I experienced and also I see that in the client groups that physiotherapists treat as well, that body image and awareness of body and, you know, our bodies are amazing things and they can do amazing things. And um, I think one of the messages I'm probably still learning is that empowerment to look after my own body and even as a physiotherapist I probably haven't been so good at that and you know you're constantly learning what suits you what works for you Um, and I think the important thing is to make it work for you and not even I don't think it matters how old you are where you are on the lifespan I think we're still very prone to being influenced by our peers and the world not necessarily our immediate peers in terms of age and um I think I'd say it's never too late. You know, I think we need to keep exercising, keep moving, you know, move more, move quicker, um, look after ourselves, but just um, believe that we can look after our own bodies. We we don't have to be dependent on someone else to tell us what to do. And I think um, for me, that's been quite an important lesson as I've learned over over the years. Yes. Um, And I think women you know, sometimes this might be motivating that they can't take care of other people unless they take care of themselves. Mm. So um, that's an important message. Um, But also the importance of being able to ask for help when needed um, and to communicate those um, issues like you were talking about is really important. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. Thanks to our guests, Michelle DiGiacomo, Rachel Crawford and Melissa Kang. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. 
If you'd like to hear more from Think Health, 2SER.com forward slash Think Health is the place to go. You can also search for Think Health in your favourite podcast app. As always, if this show has raised any concerns, go and see your GP. I'm Ellen Lee Beater. See you next week.